Welcome to another chapter of The Book Show here on RTE Radio 1. I'm Rick O'Shea. Joining me is Catherine Ryan Howard. We're going to talk a little bit later on about reality or not in crime fiction. But just to start, what are you reading right now? A Kiss Before Dying by Ira Levin, which is a fantastic suspense novel, but as a crime writer, a demoralising experience. He was only 23 when he wrote it and he went on to write Rosemary's Baby and The Stepford Wives. That sounds like the perfect way to lift your own spirits during lockdown. But first... I'm not sure that Louise Kennedy's first collection of short stories could come any more garlanded, but The End of the World is a cul-de-sac is the very unexpected outcome of having her arm twisted to attend a workshop only seven years ago. And having long felt that writing wasn't something for the likes of her. Louise Kennedy, welcome to the book show. Uh, Hi, Rick. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. Listen, I'm surprised you had time to talk to us, given the clamour for all of your time from, from the media. Uh, yeah, no, it's been a bit of a mad, a mad few days, all right. Yeah, very unexpectedly, but yeah, mad in a good way, I guess. But yeah, a bit mad. Because the reviews haven't just been been good; they've been kind of phenomenal. Yeah, I was really quite astounded. Um, like, I think I probably went through about uh, like a kind of prolonged, uh, sort of three week nervous breakdown in in March at the prospect of the book coming out. And um, you know, I suppose you know, in some ways, the stories are maybe a bit full on, and I, I didn't really know if people would uh, would like them or get them. Um, so yeah, it's really great, actually, really encouraging. So yeah, it's all good. Have you have you managed to unclench or you know open a bottle of something sparkling? Uh, yeah, there have been a few bottles open in between <laughs> along the way. Yeah, so yeah, that's great. Um, one of one of the, the the kind of side effects of this is that your mother has become something of an an online star in the world of Irish book Twitter. <laughs> you, you weren't expecting that, I presume. No, I wasn't. It's very funny, actually, and she's really annoyed because there's a pile of wet clothes on the floor, and um, she wasn't like you know fully um, sort of uh, upholstered either. So um, she, yeah, she's raging. Um, but I suppose the only uh, consolation is that she had her hand over her face, so people won't recognise her. But uh, yeah, good crack. Um, we've we've talked about this elsewhere, but you said that you've never felt that writing was something for somebody like you. Tell me why. Um, I don't know. I think it's um, maybe some of that is about being a reader, you know, because books have always been very important to me, and I, and, um, and and I've always found them, um, you know, really quite sort of delightful and, and joyous and magical, I suppose, in a way. And I guess I thought that people who, who, who write books are sort of magical people. And um, I, I worked as a chef um, for, for nearly 30 years and it just didn't occur to me really that um, I'd have a, a, a... It just didn't even occur to me to try actually to write a book, you know, or try to write anything. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess that's kind of it. So what changes then at some stage in, in, in your life? Where were you at the time and, and what was happening in your life? And then, and then where was that moment where you just pivoted a little bit and went, oh, this might be for me? Well, I mean, that happened kind of um, completely accidentally and it could easily not have happened at all. So a friend of mine, uh, Neve McCabe, had been invited to join a, a writing group that had just been set up in, in Sligo. Um, that was in early 2014. And she asked me to come along and um, I just thought it was a ridiculous idea. You, you know, why, why would I be writing or what would I be doing going to something like that? But um, she kind of persisted a, a little and I went along and... Um, I didn't feel really that I should have been there even, you know, that night and probably for quite a few weeks afterwards because, um, you know, most of the other people in the room had, had tried to write before or had been writing and, and really just wanted to, um, you know, set aside time every week, you know, with other writers to try and workshop stuff. And I had no idea. Like I had, the others had written poems and most of them had, had been trying to write it in some way. But I literally hadn't written anything since I was about 11. So uh, I agreed to try to write a short story and I 
worked on it maybe for around five weeks or something like that and then had to email it to the rest of the group and I spent a weekend of like you know in, in total distress thinking that they'd rubbish it but they were really kind and, and really encouraging but I think it was really when I sat down to try to write that story something happened with me where I've just been kind of flooded with like words and ideas ever since and I mean it really quickly I, I you know within minutes probably I realized that it was you know that it's all that I want to do which is kind of mad you know I think especially mad to think that I could very easily never have even tried. Was it partially the, the, the feedback? Because I know so many people who, I, who I've talked to uh, who've said that becoming part of writers groups like that mm-hmm. and getting some form of positive feedback about yeah. their work at the very beginning, that that's enough just to get the ball rolling. Yeah, I think that really helped a lot. And, um, you know, there were people in the in the group, actually, actually everybody in the group is really strong. Like Neve, who who brought me along, has won prizes all over the place. She's a great writer. Uh, Una Mannion was in that group, Nora McGillan. Um, you know, who's a, a published poet and was really encouraging to, to all of us as well. So I think um, to have some sort of positive uh, feedback from people like that was really helpful. And, you know, the feedback is a really delicate uh, balance as well, because, you know, if you're serious about it, you want people to, to show you where you can make the work better, but you don't want to be put off. It's a really, really delicate um kind of approach that you have to take and I think I was very lucky that I was in a room with uh, with people who were kind but also constructive that was so helpful As somebody who now has a collection of short stories out were you always somebody who read short stories? I really always read short stories. I love short stories. I mean, in a way, I think it probably started when I was quite a small child when my mother um, gave me Sinead de Valera's collections of of fairy tales. I read those. I mean, later on, I guess, like every other, um, you know, 14, 15 year old in the country, I read Exploring English One and loved it. Uh, Probably enjoyed the short stories a lot more than the novel that we had to read um, for the for the intercert then. And then after that, I think I mean, I think Irish people get short stories. as well, I, I, you know, maybe it's partly because of exploring English, um, but I think short story writers have been uh, sort of lauded in this country in a way that maybe they aren't in other countries. You know, people like Frank O'Connor and Sean O'Fuelan and uh, Mary Lavin and stuff, um, you know, that we were all sort of reared on it. Um, so if, you know, if I went into a bookshop, you know, in my 20s or 30s uh, to, to buy a book, I wouldn't feel that I had to read a novel, you, you know. Uh, so I would very often have picked up short story collections. And I suppose... The ones that would have been really, really important to me as a reader would have been um, Anne Devlin's uh, collection, uh, The Waypaver, that was published by Faber in maybe the mid-80s. Isabel Allende's um, collection, The Stories of Eva Luna, I really loved that. And there's an American writer from the South called Ellen Gilchrist, and I devoured all of all of her short stories. So, yeah, I mean, I think maybe that probably helped me. As well, when I came to write that because I'd read so many short stories that, you know, I think that as a reader, you take in the shape of things uh, without even realising it. There was a time, though, uh, and it's, it's happened to all of us at one stage or another, where you couldn't read at all. But for you, it lasted for years. Yeah, I mean, when I say I couldn't read, so I could. Yeah, it lasted for a long time. I, I suppose I probably had about 10 years when I really couldn't read fiction. Um, I, I wondered at the time why that was, because I'd always read everything, I, you know, since I was probably about 14 or 15, I've read about three books a, a week or so. Um, 
But when my children were very small and I had a busy job and then myself and my husband had a business, um, I, I couldn't, I think it was maybe that I couldn't allow myself the, uh, you know, the indulgence of, of fiction or something that I just couldn't. I think with, with fiction, you have to, you know, you have to suspend your disbelief and you, and you do have to kind of surrender to it a bit. And I just couldn't do that. So, I mean, instead, I, I guess I was reading um, books about gardening I read a lot of books about food I probably had about two years of being completely obsessed with the the Mitford sisters um I have to qualify that Jessica is my favorite in case anybody thinks that I like the kind of mad right wing ones so but Jessica was my favorite and I mean I probably read history books and biographies and things so yeah I mean I I, I was reading but I, I couldn't I couldn't read fiction at all have you thought at this stage given the nature of of, of the book and where it is now and the fact that you've had a, you know a long career before you've come to this and you've come to writing mm-hmm. so heavily that yeah. you're in danger almost of becoming an inspiration to people. You know, I would really love to think that it would encourage people because I think, um, I mean, I, I guess I am going to make just make a claim for uh, for women. I know that there are lots of reasons why men not be able to, you know, write and they're busy too and all the rest of it. But I do think that that for women, because they very often end up caring for people as well. And these days, you know, very often they have jobs too, that it can be very hard to kind of protect that part of yourself, um, you know, that is um, sort of creative and private and to tap into that, to get the time to tap into that. And, um, you know, a lot of the attention that I've been getting in the last week or so has been about my age and about the fact that I've come to it very late. And some people are a little annoyed on my behalf. But actually, I've had so many messages from women my age who who are just trying to write now and, and who find it very encouraging. So I guess if um, if it helps them along, you know, or makes them feel entitled, then I'm really happy about that. I think there's an extraordinary wellspring of, of brilliant Irish writing that, that's happening that way at the moment. Uh, yeah. It's been lovely to talk to you. The, all of the plaudits are absolutely deserved. Louise Kennedy, thanks a million for joining us on The Book Show. Oh, thank you very much, Rick. Thank you. Bye. The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac by Louise Kennedy is published by Bloomsbury. Catherine Ryan Howard is with me in studio to talk about two things that are in essence both sides of the same coin – and both of which interest her as a crime writer. What is realistic can be quite boring, and yet what really does happen can sometimes be quite unbelievable. Catherine, I'm going to start with the idea that fiction, uh, it has no real obligation to reality, particularly in crime writing. I feel like my obligation is to the truth and not factual accuracy, which I would argue are two entirely different things. I know some of my crime writing colleagues say my aim is to have a member of the Gardaí read my book and say that is 100% accurate. That's how it would happen. I think that is a complete fallacy because the only way that can be true is if you have 300 pages in the middle of the book where someone is waiting three months for forensics to come back from the lab. It's just not going to happen. Stories have a shape and they're made of drama. That means you need to drop all the boring parts of real life. If you've ever watched a dramatisation on TV of real events, you'll be familiar with the warnings that come up at the start of the programme. Timelines have been condensed, characters are composites. This is because they've cut out the boring bits. There was a show on recently, The Investigation. I should say the guy who made it was nominated for an Oscar and I as yet have not been, so what do I know? But it was 90% people on the phone or people waiting for the phone to ring, you know, People don't want realistic crime fiction. They just think they do. To prove this one day, I will write a novel called Paperwork. Do we have a very American idea of crime then, maybe? 
I certainly think that's part of the problem. I mean, the average person is probably consuming somewhere in the region of 80% of, you know, American crime fiction, American crime dramas, true crime documentaries about American crimes. And so they come to expect like CSI will arrive on the scene and the detectives will work in pairs because they all have partners. And as soon as a dead body is found, a murder investigation is launched. But that's just not realistic here in Ireland. I was speaking to you a solicitor friend this morning who pointed out that in Ireland, victims don't press charges. There's no such thing. It's the DPP who decides who's going to be charged. So in my upcoming novel, 56 Days, which will be out in August, I had a situation where a woman entered an apartment where there was a dead body. And my editor was like, how can she do that? She has to be arrested. But she hadn't actually committed any crime because in Ireland, you can't trespass on a crime scene until it's been designated a crime scene. You can't be a burglar without intent. She didn't intend to take anything. So you have this gap between what's expected by the reader and what is actually the reality of the situation. In my latest novel, The Nothing Man, I set out to dispel all the misconceptions people have about serial killers, which is that they have exceptionally high IQs. That's not true. They travel a lot. They don't. They work within geographical comfort zones. Um, They outwit police. No, they don't. That's what readers expect. But when they read my serial killer, The Nothing Man, the reaction was, I don't think that's true because he's not Hannibal Lecter, which of course is a fictitious creation. True crime documentaries and all, you know, CSI and their ilk, they make everyone an armchair expert, but they think they're an armchair expert. They're actually not. I've been lied to by criminal minds all these years. So there's a gap, uh, you say, between, you know, what should happen then and what people actually expect to happen. This is the wider point like outside of police procedure is that reality isn't always realistic. And when you have a reader thinking about what should happen, that's based on their own experiences and their own expectations. And what I've written is based on my own experience and my own expectations. And they often clash because truth is oftentimes far more unbelievable than fiction. Give me a few examples of that then. Well, in my first novel, Distress Signals, I had a front desk agent giving personal information out over the phone. Data protection be damned. And readers online, this is before I weaned myself off reading online reviews, complained that that would never happen. Well, I used to work as a front desk agent. I've worked for the world's biggest hotel brand and also in little family-owned B&Bs. And I can tell you it does happen. Spoiler alert, it was me. (laughs) I used to do that. Late last night, I was up watching a new Netflix documentary about an art heist and one of the detectives was saying why would the security guard buzz the robbers who were dressed as cops in through not one but two doors he said it had to be an inside job but this security guard was in his 20s on minimum wage had already handed in his notice and would tell anyone who would listen that he hated his job that's why he let them through the second door Is there an element then of that maybe writers should just put their foot down at certain times? That's what I've taken to doing. (laughs) I do think this is a sign that perhaps writers have lost a bit of their authority. I think these days we're so accessible. We're all over social media. I put up pictures of my post-its, you know, plotting my novels out. And I think that is eroding trust a little bit. So instead of the reader assuming that I have made a choice, they're assuming I've made a mistake. My obligation is to the truth. I want my stories to feel true, my characters real and their emotions palpable. My job is not to write another instalment of The Lonely Planet or a handbook on police procedure. 
major, but never say never. So look out for paperwork coming in 2022. It's got a filing cabinet you'll never see coming. Catherine Ryan Howard, thanks a million for joining us. Catherine's novel, The Nothing Man, is out in paperback in May. And her brand new book, which arrived here with you today, 56 Days, is going to be out this coming August. Thank you, Rick. Now it's time once again for an author to meet their readers. Here's Fiona Burke to tell us about the Baileyborough Library Book Club in County Cavan. Baileyborough Library Book Club, which has been in existence since the year 2008, is one of Cavan County Library's five active reading groups. This includes Ronald Nagelga, our Irish language reading group, which is based in our main branch in Cavan Town. These groups are facilitated by library staff and are spread across the county. Groups meet once a month and the library provides the groups with their chosen books. During lockdown, staff remain in contact with book club members and are currently rolling out a very exciting project called the Cavan Reads Project as part of Cavan County Libraries, switching off and being creative initiative under the government's Keep Well campaign. All details on this project may be found at cavanlibrary.ie or on our social media pages. Switching off and being creative sounds fantastic. Uh, oh my God, what a complete Ashling by Emer McLeisett and Sarah Breen is this week's book. Here's Marlene Kennedy from Baileyborough with her thoughts on it. How to summarise, oh my God, what a complete Ashling. So much happens in this book at such a fast pace, it is difficult to know where to start. It is, before all else, an exceedingly Irish story. The language is Irish, the references are Irish, and Ashling is as Irish as a girl can be, without the Irishness ever becoming jarring. It is also a very funny story, filled with laugh-out-loud moments, although it doesn't avoid more poignant scenes either, which gives the book a wonderful balance. Ashling is a delightful young woman, finding her way in the world. This occasionally means she finds herself in surprising situations, doesn't deter her. Ashley thinks she knows exactly what she wants and how she wants it, only to discover that there are several other equally enticing options available for her. The reader gets to join her on her voyage of discovery, and it's a treat. Most of all, this book is a fast and fabulous read, filled with recognisable scenes and characters. I dare anyone to read this book without at least a few belly laughs along the way. I couldn't agree more. Joining me now is Emer McLeisett. Emer, how are you? Welcome to the book show. Hi, Rick. How are you? Thanks for having me. God, it's lovely to hear somebody talking about something you've written. It's kind of like, God, that does sound good. <laughs> and, and you're here and you're representing both yourself and, and Sarah. Just maybe before we get into the questions from, from the book club, uh, Ashling's been out in the real world a, a few years now as a character and she has become a phenomenon. But was there always some kind of master plan in this or was your plan with book one, let's just write a book? Oh, it was absolutely, let's just write a book. I mean, when we started writing the book that the book club have just uh, read, we didn't think anyone would read it. Like, we really didn't. That's not false modesty. It's, you know, we've been given a, few, a very small few quid to give have a go writing a book about this character. Probably nobody will read it. And that'll be that. It'll fade off into obscurity. We had no idea it was going to kind of catch on and be so successful. So, yeah, we can't really believe we're, we're still working on it. <laughs> 
And we will talk a little bit later on about, obviously, there's been a, a second book in the importance of being Ashling and once, twice, three times in Ashling. And we will talk about what, in fact, happened to you today a little bit later on when we finish up. But we have questions from the Baileyborough Library Book Club. Uh, we're going to start, I think, with Anne Keegan. Hello, Emer. How do you find the co-writing process? It would be interesting to know how it works for you. Um. Yeah, that's an an interesting one. I suppose co-writing is all me and Sarah know because, um, oh my God, What a Complete Ashing was the first book either of us had ever written. It was the only way, we didn't know any other way to write a book. So we kind of sat down and said, right, well, we're going to have to figure out, you know, a system. So what we did was we tossed a coin to see who would write the first chapter. Sarah lost, so she had to write the first chapter. And we kind of went from there writing kind of snippets of it and then getting together once or twice a week and um, sharing what we'd written and going back over it. And it actually works really well because we've been friends for years. We have the same voice, but also we're able to kind of edit each other as we go along and we're able to give each other feedback, which often you wouldn't really get if you're just writing on your own. I'm guessing I've never written a book on my own, but um, it works for us and it has worked for us so far. I love the idea that you tossed a coin for the very first chapter. The randomness of that appeals to me. (laughs) Uh, Question number two comes from Patricia Sheridan. Would either of you be tempted or like to write your own novel? That's a very short question, but I I presume there's quite a long answer. Um, Yeah, it's definitely something that Sarah and I have talked about and we've probably talked about it from the very start. You know, when we first started writing Ashley, we were like, well, maybe we could write something else. You know, maybe this would lead to something else. Um, We've been so kind of caught up in Ashling for the past few years that we haven't, I mean, unless Sarah has some kind of, you know, amazing novel hidden away in a top drawer, she could have. But we do talk a lot about how we would like to write our own stuff. And then we say, do you have any ideas? And she says, no. And then I go, no, me neither. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think we will end up going on to write our own stuff. But I'd say we'll also carry on writing stuff together when we kind of, you know, finish up with Ashling. I think we we probably still have a, a writing career together ahead of us. It's something we'd both like to keep doing. You make it sound like one day Sarah is going to turn up and say, look, it's not you, it's me, and here it is. <laughs> Which yeah. Hopefully not, although yeah. I'd be very happy for her. <laughs> Question uh, three, the third one from Baileyborough in County Cavan is from Marlene again. I am Dutch, and to me, Ashling and her motivations read as extremely Irish. I saw there are at least a few foreign translations available and I wonder how Ashling and her adventures are perceived by people who are famil- unfamiliar or less familiar with Ireland. That's a great question. Yeah, interesting. I would agree that Ashling is very Irish, but I think her motivations are a little bit more universal. Maybe not universal, but they're more accessible by people who aren't Irish. So like the book has been published, probably two of the biggest places it's been published has been the UK and Germany. And Germany was really a place we were like, really? The book is so Irish. Are they going to get it? And I remember one of the editors saying to us, but I'm sure you grew up or you have read books about different places and you don't expect to always relate to everything that's in every book. And it's like, yeah, that's true. So we found the Germans loved it because they kind of related to Ashling, Like... <laughs> Ashling, Ashling, having done German for her junior cert, um, has a little bit of German in her, I think. And then when it went came to the UK as well, the same, like some of our biggest kind of fans or people who keep coming back to talk to us about Ashling are from the UK or a few people in America. So, she, I mean, it is a very Irish story. You can't get around that. But her kind of her motivations and her journey and her inner thoughts kind of are 
are universal enough, we think. Were you involved in, in any way in the translation into German? Did you know, the German translator come back to you and go, what exactly does this mean? Um, she did. I remember the German translation was a, a gorgeous woman who is German but had lived in Ireland for some time. So she was chosen because, of, you know, she would be the ideal person. She came back with a few things, but nothing to it. was actually the English editors who came back with kind of more things. I think they were the first people to kind of publish it outside of Ireland. So they were, maybe they were a bit sketchy about, oh, nobody's going to get any of this. So things like a purple snack, which you would just, well, yeah, it's a purple snack, you know, course, it's a chocolate yeah. bar. But they were like, what's a purple snack? You know, what's an ESB pole? What's, what are O'Neill's? What, you know, just things that we just assume, you know, are everyday items. They were like, this makes no sense to us. <laughs> I just always presumed that they had purple snacks in the UK and that's, that's, that's a new information snacks. to me. Okay. I mean, <laughs> Um, thanks a million for, for fielding the questions, Emer. I can't let you go, though, without asking about the next Ashling book. Just before uh, we went on here, you said today has been a big day for you. Yeah, we actually just, so our deadline is hurtling towards us at breakneck speed. But today we hit uh, the minimum word count as required in our contract to submit it as a book. So it's not quite finished, but there are enough words in it to make it a book. So that's exciting. It's it's a book as opposed to being a very long novella at this at This, this stage. is it, yeah. There is that thing about though, and I presume you have people uh, whenever they, they, they talk to you uh, online, that maybe the world needs a little bit of Ashling right now. We've been hearing that a lot. And actually, it's kind of scary because it feels like there's a lot of pressure with each book, Ashling book that's come out. There's been a lot of pressure going, oh, this is going to be the one they're going to hate. This is going to be the one where they're like, oh, no, they've lost it. It's rubbish. And obviously, we feel that about f- book four. And then on top of that, it's people going, I really need an Ashling book. I really need, you know, her in my life. And it's like, oh, I hope we can deliver. Oh, God. <laughs> no pressure. So, Emer McLeisett, thanks no a million for joining us on The Book Show. Thanks. Oh my God, what a complete Ashling is published by Gill Books, as are the other instalments in the Ashling series. Thanks to Emer and to the Baileyborough Library Book Club for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode, you can drop us a line to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for the book show this week here on RTE Radio 1, the podcast available wherever you find yours. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at bookshowrte. I'll talk to you again next week. And don't forget to check with your local bookshop or library for any of the books featured on the programme.